The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Melody, thanks for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I am a executive coach, a licensed social worker, and I am the author of a new book called Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. Fantastic. So let's get into the book. Um, Where should we begin? (laughs) I think we can begin with how this book came about. That may be a good place to get started. Perfect. So let's start with that origin story then. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, my background is as a uh, social worker. So I began my career in psychology. And uh, really, I, from a very young age, was your consummate A plus gold star student who lived to exceed expectations in every way. And I followed that path of success that was laid out for me got good grades in school, went to a good college, got a good job out of school, and um, came to a point early on in my career where I found myself completely and utterly burned out. And it wasn't for lack of being good at my job or not being able to manage my time, but it was because I had let my own tendencies, my own people-pleasing, lack of boundaries, perfectionism, self-doubt, I had let all of that become such a heavy weight to bear that I literally couldn't go on anymore. So I came to a point in my career where I had to use my training in human behavior and psychology. I had to use all of those tools on myself. And now as an executive coach, I work with people who are just like me, who are also highly sensitive, but also high achieving and have that same combination of traits that can at once be our superpowers that help us excel and and strive in our careers, but can at the same time be a detriment and really hold us back if we don't have the right tools to be aware of these qualities and know how to manage them. That is fantastic. And uh, I'm excited to know that I'm speaking to somebody else who has a psychology undergrad degree too. So this is great. So we will go heavy into the psychology there. So let's think about this because right now you're at a point where you've written this book, you're kind of able to understand those, um, the, the barriers that you faced, maybe where they came from and then how to overcome them. And so maybe we could use you as a case study. Um, so what led you to have these types of barriers in your life, and then we can transition into like what you did to overcome them. Absolutely. So in the book, I talk about this personality type, which I've defined called a sensitive striver. So again, pretty self-explanatory, but it's that combination of being a deep feeler and deep thinker combined with that ambition and drive to be the best version of yourself. And those two sides, when they come together, again, can be a strength, but can hold you back. And so in the book, I define six core qualities that make up being a sensitive striver. And when these qualities are unbalanced, that's when we have the downsides. So I can give you a full, uh, a couple of examples of that, which one of the strive qualities, the first one is sensory sensitivity. So that's having a more intense nervous system response since we as sensitive strivers have a more finely attuned central nervous system 
this is about 20% of the population, about one in five people that has a set of different genetic differences and actually brain differences that leads them to being more responsive to everything that's happening both within and around them. So I was someone, especially earlier on in my career when I didn't realize it, would get overwhelmed very easily. And even now today, if I'm put under pressure or I feel like I'm being rushed or there's urgency around something, I very easily can become frazzled and I completely shut down. So that's one example of how that manifests. The second would be thoughtfulness. So we sensitive strivers, and this is certainly the case for me, we're reflective, intuitive. We think through decisions before we act on them. But again, if that's unbalanced, that can look like worrying, indecision, overthinking things, self-doubt. So as you can see, all of these traits have, have an upside, but they have a flip side along with them. Yeah, this is really interesting. And what's what's interesting to me too is taking a step back and understanding where you can put yourself to be successful. Because based on my understanding of um, the highly sensitive people, I'm, I'm thinking back to Susan's Kane, Susan Cain's book, Quiet. She talked yes. about a lot of the re research in that too. It's something that you can mm -hmm. see in young children. Some people are more sensitive to stimulation and then other children, they need a lot more in order to be simulated. So the people who need more to be stimulated, they're jumping out of planes and going to rock concerts and <laughs> the other people need like quiet in order to be able to function. And so it makes me think that you need to be very mindful of what type of atmosphere you put yourself in. So for example, if you're in a really, really fast moving startup and you have to do a lot of things, a lot of different ways, a lot of times, and every day is different, that could be easily overwhelming. 100%. You, you put it perfectly that the, the whole point of describing this and being aware of this personality is so that you can manage yourself better and you can create conditions for your own success. Or if you know someone like this, you can understand their tendencies so you know how to communicate, work with them better to achieve better outcomes. Because if you're having a difficult conversation or negotiating with a sensitive striver and you come at them very aggressively, you dump a ton of information on them all at once, well, they're going to shut down or they're going to be very easily overwhelmed. So even just being aware because you're, you either are this personality type or you're dealing with them. Um, having the awareness gives you power to get the most out of these qualities and traits. Thank you. It's such a pleasure that we have this interview going after a few mishaps yes. and stumbles. It's, it's wonderful to be here. It is great to have you, my friend. Thank you for your patience. Um, so how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So my name is Paul Ross. I am on a passionate mission to show already successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, speakers, professional salespeople how to dramatically up-level their results through leveraging the power of subconscious communication. I am a master hypnotist, watch out everyone, an author, sales trainer, speaker, and I am a fanatical lover of cats. I am an allurophile. Both of my fur babies are trying to break down the door to get in here. They like to be on this broadcast, but sometimes they accidentally disconnect or get in the way of the camera. And so they're locked out and trying to get in. That is fantastic. And you have a new book. Can you tell the listeners about that too? My book and 
they can see, right? This is video as well as audio. Look how handsome I am here. <laughs> this is my book, Subtle Words That Sell. And the subtitle is How to Get Your Prospects to Convince Themselves to Buy and Add Top Dollars to Your Bottom Line. Because I believe if your prospect, customer, client, whoever's on the other side of the negotiating table is not actively engaging their imagination on the subconscious level to convince themselves to buy, you're doing too much work and you're leaving a lot of money on the table. I am lazy and I don't like leaving money on the table. <laughs> now, these are very unconventional stuff that, that you cannot get from off the shelf. It's unlike anything you've seen before because I come from outside the field of sales. This is something you don't know, Kwame. And am I pronouncing your name correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I know. Um, this comes from outside the field of sales because I'm going to spring this on you. It's not in my one sheet. I'm originally, my original career was a pickup and dating coach. I taught men how to pick up women and successfully date them. Now, if you want to think about a negotiate a negotiation and a sale, there's no bigger negotiation and a sale than getting a date. If you think about it and getting the other person to be attracted to you, think about that. You have to do your, your prospect, your prospecting, you have to do your qualification, you have to establish rapport, do your sales presentation, do your clothes, and then um, handle objections and see if you can get repeat business. So originally, I came from that field, and I saw the correlation very early on. And I took a deep dive into how to use neurolinguistic programming and some hypnotic techniques to build it into a sales process. And that's how I actually got started from a completely different, wildly off the cuff way of looking at things. That's so fascinating. It it's really is an interesting approach. And the thing is, I you can see the similarities, persuasion, um, all of those things, they, they're going to be similarities in different fields. And then if you can take different approaches from different fields, it gives you a wider variety of tools to use in the business world. Yeah, and to fill in a little bit of the blank, what happened is around 2006, I started getting emails from students attached with attachments of pictures of their wives and families. And they said, thank you. I've met the woman of my dreams and blah, 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 blah. And I've started to use your stuff in sales and I'm getting tremendous results. I'm getting 50, 100, 300% improvement in my sales. You should come up with a course on this. And so I went into my language lab. I consider myself to be like the mad scientist of sales and language. And I began to come up with courses and each iteration, each repetition, I improved it and I improved it and I improved it until I came up with what I have today. Very interesting. And I think the tagline of your book is um, is, a, is unique in and of itself. And you're talking about how you can get people to make the decision for themselves, how they can you go a little bit deeper into I would what love to. Yeah. So when I teach, I always want to get into the principles first, the concepts. I do have word for word things you can use word for word, many scripts. I don't like long scripts, many things that you can say. But the basic principle and this is a wildly different way of looking at selling. To me, selling is about creating states of consciousness. Can I unpack that before before people screech on the brakes and say, okay, I'm turning, uh, uh, what is Paul's office rocker? Let me tell you what I mean by that. So when your prospect comes to you or your team is there, 
what states of mind do you want them in? Do you want them to be bored? Do you want them to be resentful? Do you want them to be somewhat interested? Do you want them to be scattered or do you want them focused, eager to listen, feeling like you're a leader they want to follow, wanting to see you win? And my crazy claim is through using the power of suggestion, you can create those states early on. But let me give you a metaphor when I mean what I mean about states of mind, states of consciousness. So I'm going to ask you a question. It's not a trick question. It's a real question. Let's say we want to conduct a current of electricity. We have a piece of gold foil and a piece of cardboard. Not a trick question. Which one's going to conduct the electricity? Um, gold foil. The gold foil. We know this instinctively, naturally, and from our experience. So consider your words, your message, whatever you're negotiating, to be the electricity. But the state of mind of the person who's receiving it to be like that gold foil or the cardboard. How do you get them in those gold foil states of focus and believing in you, believing that they can make a good decision? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid. And he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure. Long overdue, to be honest. <laughs> um, so how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So um, I've been in politics and government for somewhere around 12 to 13 years now. And that's really the basis of, of my involvement. But I've also had a career in government. Um, but now I've moved into the private sector and exploring some avenues there. But I, um, I ran for public office a couple of years ago and lost. So I'm really excited to dig into that and how negotiating and fear tie into that, um, as well as just talking about how women in politics and uh, my involvement there. I've worked for a lieutenant governor and a governor as well as some state agencies, traveled the country for a campaign and been involved at really the local, state and national level in campaigns. So I'm excited to dig in. Absolutely. And and this is a fun topic. Fun, not in that like experiencing fear is enjoyable, but fun in that there is a lot to explore here and a lot to learn. And so our topic is going to be negotiating through fear. And so we're going to talk about at the beginning, 
First, we're going to discuss how to negotiate away the fear internally for yourself and externally when you're helping other people to overcome their fears, um, recognizing that you don't need to be perfect. And then in po the political world, fundraising, which is always scary, both for the people who are raising funds and the people who are being asked. And so how, do, how do, can we use some of these negotiation principles in that realm? So let's just start about Let's just start off by talking about fear in negotiation in general or difficult conversations in general. What are the things that we need to know about that? Yeah, so I think I think there are some pretty universal things, whether you're having a, a dialogue with your spouse or your boss or you're a, a trying to negotiate whether or not you actually want to do something like run for public office. And I think it's getting just like really clear on why you're doing what you're doing um, and, and what your interest is in the conversation. Um, I think knowing what we want to do and why is the first place where we can come to negotiation or conversation and being able to be authentic and able to bring up our best points. And I think the other thing that's really important is understanding where the other person is coming from. And we can go into this a little bit later, but something I use is um, incentive structures. It's principles from economics, but I use it in every part of my life, whether I'm negotiating with my husband on where we want to have dinner or I'm talking to a candidate and trying to help them explain um, and understand how their private sector career is going to be very different from being in the public office and public life. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about those incentives. So for those who sure. are not as well-versed in economics, what, what do you mean by incentives? Sure. So in a very simple sense, like think about a company who sells a good or service or product. Like let's think of Pepsi big brand, they sell soda to a lot of people, right? And companies, they want to offer a good or service and they want to be paid fairly for what they offer. We want to be able to enjoy their soda. We want it to be delicious. We want it to be at a fair price. And so we want a couple of things. Incentives for us are we want it to taste good and we want it to be accessible and we want it to be um, a pretty good price. They want to be able to make money and offer something that where they can continue to get um, new people that like it and continue to buy it. So on a very simple basis, we're both looking for different things on each side of the incentive structure. Very nice. Yep, absolutely. And now when we think about fear, how can we wrap this concept of fear and how fear impacts us in difficult conversations with potentially some incentives? I think that's a really interesting potential blend. Yeah, so um, something that's been popping up for me in some of my work that I do um, like working with other women is negotiating things like salaries or raises. Um, that comes up quite a bit, but it also relates to this work in politics and deciding whether or not to run. Um, there's this fear because we want to be able to, or really anyone wants to be able to ask for whether it's a salary that's at market rate or a salary that you think you deserve. But there's some fear there because I think all of us have some like ideas in our head. We've got our own narratives of what what we think we deserve, what we've been told we deserve, all these little things that pop up that create this idea of imposter syndrome, right? Like that everyone experiences at various points, but that whole fear that pops up is not a reason not to do something. And that's that portion where we talk about fear and how we're using it. But I think that this fear that pops up comes from I mean, everyone's got insecurities about what they, how they see themselves. And sometimes I think that's where a lot of this is coming from. 
100%. Marie, thanks for joining us today. Hello, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for joining us. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, thank you. I'm Marie Silverkeister, and I'm accredited public relation professional, and I own a company by the name of Murphy Upson, and we specialize in public relations, but our niche is really helping communities and public sector agencies make improvements to their communities. And so our role is to facilitate those conversations that sometimes can be very difficult because we're introducing change, even though it may be for the greater good. I love that. And I know part of what you do includes facilitation, right? So can you tell us about what that looks like in your role and just in general, what facilitation is? So to be effective, what we are talking about is making sure that everyone has an opportunity to contribute. And when we introduce a community improvement, which may be a new shared use path, or maybe it's a new road, or maybe it is a new development in your community, the public's instant reaction could be fear, it could be anger. And so they may come to that initial meeting that we've planned to share the concept, feeling very passionate. And so it's my role to make sure that we can explain what the proposal is, but leave a lot of room for the public to give input so they can shape what ultimately is built or so on. And so I help plan the meeting so that it's a very constructive conversation. But then I also make sure that as we run the meeting, we're giving everyone an opportunity to be heard and we're not getting defensive in response to their anger or passion. Yes, no, this is great. And I think it, it'll be good for folks to, to get a better understanding just in general, how these facilitations can manifest themselves, not just in your specific role, but also in, in general too, because um, somebody listening might say, well, I'm not doing public projects like this. So I guess let me go to another podcast. Wait, if you go to another podcast, go to Ask With Confidence or or our Spanish language podcast, (laughs) but don't leave, don't leave because there are opportunities to use these same facilitation skills just day to day as a leader in your organization. So before we get deeper into like the nuts and bolts of it, can you talk about some potential other avenues where somebody could use facilitation within their, their everyday job? So when we talk about how to use facilitation skills in everyday practice, so let's say you're in a meeting and you walk in and you feel tension, or maybe you introduce introduce an idea and somebody has a negative reaction. So the same tips apply, the same principles as your compassionate curiosity. You, You listen, you probe, you don't be so worried about conveying your idea that you stop for a minute and say, well, well, let's talk about what are, what are you concerned about? I'm sensing that there may be some resistance. Can you explain why? And being curious and respectful, sometimes you'll get anger back for whatever reason. And instead of dismissing that or just having this visceral reaction and then escalating, it's better to ignore the negativity and focus on the kernel of truth. Whatever they've said, there's always something in there that once you get rid of the smoke and mirrors of, you know, blah, 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 I'm so angry. Well, let's talk about what you're angry about. 
let's get to that and let's talk about it. By using those techniques, you're showing that you really do care and that you are listening. And it gives that person a sense of first catharsis and then also validation. Right. Well, first of all, thank you. It means a lot to me that you read the book. That's really cool um, because you're really good at what you do. <laughs> so, so that makes me feel good. But you're, you're absolutely right. And, and here's the thing, too, when you think about the, the potential of emotional responses, um, we should be anticipating that. Right. Because I think a lot of times people come into these conversations and then they kind of they, they approach it from a place of fear. I hope people don't respond negatively to this. Uh, no. People are people and emotions are an integral part of who we are. And so these emotions will be there. It would be weirder. It would be really weird if they weren't, quite honestly. And I think one of the the most challenging things from time to time is professionalism. And now I'm not saying that people should be unprofessional. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that some people can be so good at being professional and keeping that stoic game face on that they respond emotionally, but people don't perceive the emotion. So to your point, Marie, you gave the example of if somebody gets really upset, right? If somebody gets upset and it's clear that they're upset, we can say, aha, okay, I can acknowledge and validate that emotion. I understand a lot of what they said was the emotion speaking, but there's a kernel of truth in there. And so we can give them, we can give them almost that pass, right? I understand you're upset. But then if somebody says the exact same thing, but calmer, you might be like, this person is an absolute lunatic. How did, they, <laughs> how did they arrive at that position? But you don't, since you didn't perceive the emotionality behind it, then you respond substantively to an issue that is not fully substantive. It's also emotional too. Jamie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Kwame, for having me. It is my pleasure, my friend. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I'm an executive coach for smart women who hate office politics. I help them get promoted and better paid without throwing anyone under the bus. Oh, I like that. And when you think about the term office politics, what does, what does that mean to you? Office politics simply means that there is a difference of opinion. When there's conflict, uh, when people have different opinions, People can interpret that in many ways, and one of them is often, hey, this is office politics, especially when there is convergence of authority positions and people having different opinions, which happens all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a it's commonplace, almost impossible to avoid, which is why your coaching practice is so important. And I know you have a really exciting offer for the listeners, too. Yes. So if you are a mid-career woman who wants to get promoted from within and you want to get better paid, I invite you to book your complimentary consultation with me. Uh, the link to book that complimentary consultation will be in the podcast description. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. So listeners, make sure to take advantage of that resource. Again, link in the description. So today we are going to focus on self-advocacy in the workplace. And I think maybe, Jamie, one of the best places to get started is just with a like an operational definition of self-advocacy. So what does that mean to you? So self-advocacy simply means that you are expressing, explicitly saying asking for what you want in your career. And that can look like asking for a promotion. That can look like saying hard things, sending 
a tough email where you have to express opposing opinion or even deliver bad news by saying no. And so it seems kind of obvious, right? If there's something that you want or a barrier or boundary that you want to set, you should let somebody know. Just say it, right? And so it seems simple, but there's something that often holds people back. And so in your experience as a coach, what are those things that hold people back from engaging in this self-advocacy at work? So I specialize in working with smart women and I have seen that for many smart women, and I know this also happens for men too. Women are not alone in this, but it's just that my specialty is coaching women. Uh, women often overcommit, overdeliver, undercommunicate their wants and wins. And it feels comfortable in a, in a, in a certain way, in a certain familiar way that, uh, undercommuting their, undercommunicating their wants and wins feels comfortable and familiar. But in the long run, it doesn't create the result that they want in their career. And the reason for this is really simple. Just like, it's like negotiation, right? In that it feels uncomfortable, right? So in the, uh, parlance or in, in the negotiation, uh, world, we call this anchoring, right? Telling people what you want. And it feels like you might die. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. It's, it's so funny, Jamie, that you say that because in, in my book, I talk about that fear of rejection that people have. And so when you think about the fear of rejection from an evolutionary psychology perspective, it becomes really fascinating because when you think about it today, if we're rejected, if we make a request and somebody says no, life goes on in the majority of cases, <laughs> everything, everything goes swimmingly the rest of your day, nothing bad really happens. You just take that loss and then you can move on in the majority of cases. But then if you think about early humans, back when we were in tribes for survival, re social rejection meant death because right. you could not survive by yourself. And so the humans that had that fear of rejection were more likely to survive because it promoted pro-social and collaborative behavior because you know what happens <laughs> if you get rejected. But now we're in a stage where that same rejection doesn't mean death, but it can feel like death. And that's what holds people back. Yeah, it's totally normal. <laughs> Exactly. It's totally exactly. normal because we and and that's because like you said we have a human brain that evolved over a long time and a part of us still is uh is isn't that mindset of like if I step out of the cave if I say something different if I say something that asserts my individual want and need then I'm going to be told no and this can mean in a way a social death which psychologists have have uncovered can feel even more painful than physical pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Kwame, glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure, man. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Certainly. So uh, I'm, I'm Jonathan Jones. I'm a two times TEDx speaker, uh, best-selling author. And now I'm just focused on helping speakers, coaches, and consultants start their podcast and show them how I can elevate their brand. Fantastic. And you have a background in college athletics too, right? Correct. Correct. I, I was a, I was a junior college national champion as well as, you know, finished out my career at the division three level. But um, yeah, it was, it was a good journey. It was a good journey. 
that's great, man. That is great. Yeah, I uh, I was one of those people who uh, I was a spectator, professional spectator. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's great, man. Well, today we are going to talk about name, image, and likeness contracts. And so this is uh, revolutionizing student athletics. And I think it's a really cool opportunity to talk about how negotiation is playing a role in the development of that side of the business. And so we're mm-hmm. going to rely on your background, not only as a student athlete, but also in your previous work, working with student athletes. And then we're going to transition into a really unique way that the student athletes can get more power and leverage in their negotiations. And listeners, of course, you know that the principles that we talk about can be used in whatever negotiations you're having day to day as well. So uh, Jonathan, how about we start off with just a brief overview with name, image, and likeness and um, why it's such a big deal this year? Certainly. So name, image, and likeness um, is just what, what, what's the best way I can break it down? Okay, so ultimately, um, college athletes for the longest time have been competing. And after their four years or, you know, some maybe a few more years than that, uh, their bodies are beat up, their bodies are bruised. And sometimes they don't really have what they would like to be able to show for it in terms of monetary gain, maybe even in terms of status. So name, image, and likeness has been such a big thing because universities colleges and other institutions have been able to benefit and have been able to generate billions of dollars over the past, I'm not sure how many years. And now this is the year to where college athletes can now be able to benefit from in a monetary standpoint as well. So that's why Kwame, I think it's, it's so big now because uh, there are former athletes who might've graduated and they thought they were going to go pro or they thought they were going to do this or do that. uh, But then they didn't have those opportunities so now they're the individuals who are left like, wait, well, how, how can I benefit when my name was at the highest point when I had the most exposure? And, and, you know, they didn't really gain as much traction as they could have at that time. So now with student athletes going through institutions and now with them having the opportunity to be able to benefit directly and right now, I think is huge. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the thing is, the the schools and the NCAA, they might have said, well, you know, we, you didn't come and do this for free. You got a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so you say, well, um, so you got billions of dollars and I got a scholarship <laughs> when I was <laughs> when I was here to play sports. Uh, OK, I, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And so finally, we're taking that step um, where student athletes can get paid for what they do uh, and mm-hmm. in generating so much money for these institutions and me- the media companies and all those things. Right. And so great. Now we're in the wild, wild west. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so now we're in a situation where great we can make this money and there are limited rules and nobody's done this before and we have a lot of sports agents a lot of lawyers getting in there and then negotiating these contracts and uh, for the listeners who don't know yes i am the managing director of the american negotiation institute but i still practice law and um I, actually jonathan this is new since we chatted so i'm a, a registered sports agent now too so congratulations thank you yeah it's pretty cool i feel like the rock in ballers but just a lot smaller <laughs> very nice <You> know? <laughs> kita thanks for joining us today thank you for having me this is so exciting yeah it's it's exciting for me to have you in my domain um, oh yeah so, i'm on your court now <laughs> that's right so um how about you get us started by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do okay well 
I am the founder and chief strategist of Success Bully. And Success Bully is an elite accountability practice. So that makes me a professional butt kicker. Uh, and I work with high performing type A entrepreneurs um, in two different capacities. So on my one on one roster, I work with um, high performing service based businesses that are looking to, to cross, cross the chasm between six figures and seven figures. And in my group coaching, I work with part-time side hustlers. I want to call them emerging entrepreneurs who are looking to scale either their coaching or consulting practice uh, so that they have the option of leaving corporate America. And Kita, the thing that I appreciate most about you is accountability, always holding me accountable to the the agreements that we made and the plans that we created. And um, that's what I want to focus on today, because for folks out there who are leaders, friends, um, spouses, <laughs> you know, parents, whatever it is, from time to time, you're going to find yourself in a position where you have to hold somebody accountable. Mm-hmm. And so let's start off before we even get into the strategy, like the persuasive strategy behind holding somebody accountable effectively. Um, let's discuss what accountability is. Okay. Well, I think accountability gets a bad rap. So when you hear the term kind of thrown around, it's off after something has gone off the rails, right? Where it's like someone needs to be held accountable, right? When things go south, that's when you really start hearing the term thrown around. But what I like to think of accountability is it's a tool for greatness. So it's a tool that can be leveraged so that you are being honest with yourself, you're being honest about your performance, and you're being honest about uh, committing to your big vision. And so when I think about accountability, it really is being honest, right? Did you or did you not do it? That's what accountability is to me. I love it. Yeah, I I love the simplicity of that because Mm -hmm. that, and you tell me what you think about this, because we have honesty, and then also it sounds like there's a little bit of consistency in there too, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because I think that when, you know, you can't hold somebody accountable if you check in with them quarterly, right? Your whole life can change in 30 days, you know? Or or um, it's not effective if it is done every you know, there's not a consistent schedule. There's not a consistent way that it's used. It's not a a consistent amount of deliverables. So like consistency across the board on how uh, you show up, but also how you facilitate, like I have to be accountable as well. Cause like I have to make sure that you're on track and I have to show up as the best version of myself to do that. Yeah. And now let's talk about some of the challenges now there there are a lot of them so especially given your position i'd be interested to see what you've experienced mm-hmm. and so let's say you're in a situation where mm-hmm. you have been tasked either officially or unofficially with holding somebody accountable you're making sure that they are honest with you themselves and the world kind of being consistent with what they said they would do and then what they actually did and now the reason we have, we're having an episode on this is because it's difficult to do. So mm-hmm. in your opinion, what are the things that make this process of holding somebody accountable so challenging? Well, I think that, um, and, and I, I yell this on the internet all the time, that coaching is only as good as the action that's taken. So like we could show up to our weekly check-in, but if you didn't do the work, I can't actually do the work for you. Right. So I think that that is the most difficult part where like, I know you can do it. You just didn't do it. <laughs> right. Or, 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 or the week got away from you. And so like, what I can't do is actually do the work for you. And so sometimes that gets a little frustrating because, you know, and, and some, we see this sometimes in like group coaching where it's like week after week, you're going to show up 
you gonna show up like this? Are you are you comfortable with this? <laughs> you want to be the caboose in this group? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I think that the frustrating part about it is that I can encourage you. We can have clear objectives. We can break it down based on what's going on in your life. I can, I can give you tough love. I can give you, you know, positive affirmations. I can give you all kinds of things, but I cannot do the work for you. Right. And so essentially there's an inherent lack of control in the yeah. process of holding people yeah. accountable because when it comes mm -hmm. down to it, they have to do what they said they, they want to do. They have to take the action, right? And so. so for you, when you're holding somebody accountable, what is the limit? Mark, thanks for joining us today. I'm so pleased to be with you, Kwame. Yes, we are pleased to have you, my friend. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, in my professional career, I started out as a psychiatrist. I was a UCLA assistant clinical professor of psychiatry for 20 years. Part of my early focus was suicide prevention work. And one of my mentors was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. He was probably one of the top pioneers in the area of suicide prevention. And in 25 years, none of my patients died by suicide. And we can get into what was going on that enabled that. I then expanded that to training FBI and police hostage negotiators. Uh, for a brief moment, I took a left turn. I should have stuck with this. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, I was the world's leading expert on helping divorced couples get back together again. I was on the Today Show. I was on Oprah. I was in the New York Times. I was in the LA Times. and But it wasn't as life and death as my suicide prevention work. And, and I never marketed, people just heard about it. And then they had me on these shows and couples who were divorced uh, and it wasn't working out for either of them had heard that I had this uh, subspecialty of recoupling. And so I did that for a while. I probably should have written a book on that, but I, as I said, uh, suicide prevention, hostage negotiation training just, just seemed a little more life and death to me. That's great. And um, listeners, um, Mark is one of my favorite authors, and um, I am a big time fan of the work that you've done. And I was telling Mark that I've taken probably over 40 pages of notes, single space with, with the books that he's written. So we're going to put links to all of that and, and Mark's website in the, in the description too, so you could enjoy um, more wisdom from Mark. And so today, Mark, I, with the time that we have, we're going to talk about how we can amplify our listening skills. And just in our brief conversation, before the interview started, you brought up a concept called uh, that you described as helping people to feel felt when they're talking to you. So what does that mean to you? Well, it's much easier, easier to show than tell. So I'm going to give you the experience of feeling felt right now. Are you game? Always, always. So uh, uh, I have five bestsellers in Russia. And a couple of years ago, I headlined with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and I headlined because my books were doing well. And the title of my talk there which we can use for this episode, change everything you know about communication. What I did with the audience, and there's video clips, which I can send you links to, and here's where you're gonna feel felt. 
If I focus on our conversation now, Kwame, you're listening to me. And in your mind, you're checking boxes. I hope he'll cover this area. Uh, this might be uh, a good thing to dive into. I want to make sure we cover this. And so if I focus on you listening to me, I will try and uh, give you information that covers the boxes. But if I, instead of focusing on you listening to me, I focus on what you're listening for inside what you're listening to me. This is what I'm picking up and tell me if it's true. What you're listening for is valuable practical information that is relevant to your listeners, that's clear, concise, and doable and usable by them because the trust and confidence of your viewers and listeners matters to you and you want to honor it. And the last thing you want to do is waste their time. And so you're listening for something that would be a great use of their time. If the episode is only 20 minutes and they're commuting, you want to make sure that they get something of value in their life. And you want it to be relevant to them and valuable to them. Is that accurate? <laughs> I wish we would have recorded the pre-interview, Mark, because that was incredible. That was incredible. Okay, so break down for the listeners what you just did. That was incredible. 